Welcome to the Pharmacotherapy Podcast. Uh, my name is Jim Keller. I'm a uh, professor at the University of Texas in Austin, College of Pharmacy, and also a professor of medicine and oncology at UT Health, the Health Science Center in San Antonio, Texas, where I actually reside. Uh, today we'll be talking with Dr. Emma Tillman, Associate Research Professor at Indiana University School of Medicine, and she's uh, part of the Riley Hospital for Children's in Indianapolis. Uh, the August issue of Pharmacotherapy contained a study by Dr. Tillman and uh, her colleagues out of the Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. The title of that article is Risk and Mitigation Strategies to Prevent Etoposide Infusion-Related Reactions in Children. Uh, Dr. Tillman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Excellent. I do. A few questions after going through your article. A couple of questions came to mind. I guess the first one is uh, looking at uh, your study to identify some adverse drug reaction, a relatively rare adverse drug reaction. What prompted you uh, to look at infusion reactions of etoposide to begin with? What caused you to, to look there? That's a great question. So this project actually stemmed out of my colleagues at Children's Mercy. I began collaborating with Dr. Goldman in March of 2020, and we were talking about different pharmacovigilance programs at Children's Mercy. They have a prospective pharmacovigilance program, and they noticed kind of anecdotally that they were seeing an uptick in these infusion-related reactions with etoposide. And so when this first started occurring, their pharmacist reached out to some listservs and asked if anyone else was seeing this. And so as we were talking about building our programs and a network for tracking these adverse drug reactions, she asked if we had experienced this uptick in infusion-related reactions with etoposide. And I said, well, hmm, I don't really know. This isn't something we've looked at. And this, there wasn't really an easy way to track etoposide infusion reactions at our institution. So we decided, well, well, let's just look back in the last 10 years at both of our institutions and see if there was any differences in rates, see if that increased in a certain time period. And so that's really what, what brought us to the methods of this paper. Um, so it was really something that came out of a clinical hunch that we thought we were seeing something, and then we, we took some time to investigate that. Actually, it's very interesting. A lot of us who have worked in different settings, when we identify different kinds of, kinds of reactions, we'll call friends at other institutions and say, you know, we've just noticed an uptick of this kind of reaction. Are you seeing the same thing? So I really appreciate you doing that because I think a lot of us in practice have done that, similar kinds of things over the years, trying to see are, are we the only ones seeing this or, or are others seeing the same thing? So I guess that leads to my second question. As part of the article you mentioned in 2017, uh, your institution actually uh, did not switch to the inline filter that was part of the package insert change and that the folks at uh, Children's Mercy did make the change. Uh, why, why did you not make the change? So I think this is just part of clinical practice. You know, the package inserts get updated at certain time points, but it doesn't always come into changing your practice right away. And sometimes people aren't even aware of this package insert change. I'm not even exactly sure which year that was changed in the package insert, but it was decided by the Children's Mercy Group to start using filters in 2017. 
I know recently at Riley, this has been something that's been talked about in our group that they said, you know, should we be filtering all chemotherapy products? Because many of them do suggest that you filter them, but still at our institution, not all of them are. And it's a, a suggestion, you know, not something that is required to filter. So this was just something that had not been implemented at, at our institution yet. That certainly makes sense. I mean, a lot of the, uh, you know, we always ask uh, our folks in, in San Antonio, have you even seen a package insert in the last umpteen years? So uh, I, I'm not sure that's probably the best place for companies to put changes like that and, uh, versus putting sending out a, a dear doctor and an announcement to pharmacy or something would seem to make more sense. Uh, I did, as part of your methods, I did, I did uh, pick up where you were talking about the modified Hartwig severity assessment tool that's used for toxicity management. And uh, I've been in this game for a long time and I hadn't heard of that one. So I I'd, I'd, uh, appreciate you filling me in. I'd, I figured I'd ask you instead of having me go look it up sure, uh, sure. To, this- to explain how that works and what's the scoring system. And then how did you apply that to, to this specific reaction? Yeah. So I think that's, that's tough. And the adverse drug reactions have um, objectively giving something that's subjective, an objective number so you can compare them. So this scale that we used, it's somewhat modified, but it puts adverse drug reactions into a mild, moderate, and severe. And a mild reaction would be one that the drug is continued without any treatment. So um, an example of this would be you have diarrhea with an antibiotic, but you don't switch drugs, you don't stop it, and you don't take any medication to, to change it. It's just a mild reaction. A moderate would be a drug that was either stopped or one that required treatment. So this could be something where you took a drug, you got a rash, and then the, the drug was stopped, or you you took a drug and you needed another t- treatment to counteract the side effects. And then a severe reaction would be one that caused hospital admission, permanent disability, delay in discharge, or was life-threatening. And most of our reactions here with this infusion type reaction, some of them were done in a hospital infusion center, but they may have required a hospital admission or they they had life-threatening consequences where they required epinephrine or life-saving drugs. So we char- characterize those as severe. Okay. So it's kind of a, it's actually like a modification off of like an ECOG severity scoring of, uh, you know, grade one, two, three, four. So it's a, it's a a condensing of that kind of a scaling. Exactly. Makes sense. From what would basically be considered a rare event, you know, that these, even from your data, seem to appear in in 1% or even a little less than 1%. uh, how How would an institution go about trying to set up a monitoring program for such a, for such an ADR? Yeah, I think this this problem really highlights something that's lacking in a lot of healthcare systems, where most um, healthcare systems that at least in my experience, there's not a great way for tracking these adverse drug reactions. So if you said, you know, how many times are you seeing etoposide infusion related reactions at your institution, people would have to do a lot of dig- digging and polling to try to find out what the, what's actually going on. This is something that's not well reported. Because most of the times it's voluntarily reported rather than having a prospective program. One thing that we hope to do at my institution and is already underway at, at Children's Mercy is they have a prospective program. So a computerized report prints out daily of potential adverse drug reactions. And then a pharmacist reviews those potentials. So these could be something that was like a change or a modification to their allergies or they got Benadryl or steroids um, in an infusion-related uh, setting where they 
it was a high potential for this being an adverse drug reaction. Then the pharmacist goes and investigates and then documents that documents that in the patient chart accordingly. So shows that they did have an allergy or um, a sensitivity to a, a drug. And then these can be recorded and kept in some sort of database. So then you can easily access these later on. So some hospitals will report this to their P&T committee on a monthly basis of we had this many adverse drug reactions. And I think we do, at my institution, we do a great job with um, medication errors and error reporting, but adverse drug reactions is something that we, we are still trying to, to improve upon. Yeah, I think that's uh, every institution's issue. I mean, uh, you know, usually the the more common five, ten plus percent, the uh, the ones that we see more often, you get used to and you can identify and uh, make a note in the chart, uh, put it in an ADR reporting system. But it's the it's those rare ones, less than one percent, less than two, or whatever that number is. That I think we all struggle with. Uh, trying to make sure that you don't find, and, and especially where you may change an administration or change something that then causes a very rare thing, maybe even to be a little less rare or occur more often. How would you pick that up? So it's real interesting. I like the idea of, of even doing the retrospective where you identify any, any drug used to treat and track those back each month and then identify those drugs and kind of track the drug by numerics, then I think that may be a reasonable way to do that and wouldn't take a ton of time for someone to be doing. Anyway, yeah, that, I think we're all trying to figure out better ways of identifying adverse drug reactions. So I appreciate your, your feedback on that. Uh, from, from your data, what it does appear, though, is that the inline filter seems to be the issue. What changes have you made at your institution? You didn't have it. Did uh, CMH take the, the inline filter out after they identified this? They did. So they are no longer using an inline filter. Um, our institution had talks about doing to using the filter. And, and I quickly brought up that um, after CMH started using the filter, they had this uptick in reactions. I said, if we're going to do it, we need to do this very carefully and really monitor. And any sign that we're following that same trend, um, we need to pull back on that. And I, at, right now, the, I think they've been a le- little less eager to, to change that practice. And then we're also doing a little bit of investigation to see if there's something that that filter is doing. I think, you know, you don't think of a a filter itself causing an adverse drug reaction, but there's, I kind of went down a rabbit hole of like all the things that a filter can do. You know, it can, the sterilization process of the filter is exposed. Some are exposed to gas or radiation or something that can actually leach out when the drug is administered. Drugs can be, can bind to a filter and there can be excipients, lots of different things that um, could potentially happen. Um, so we're kind of going down that, doing some analytical work, looking at the filters and the interaction with the drug to see if there's anything there that we can pinpoint. Is there a certain type of filter? Or is there something going on with this particular filter and this particular drug that could be causing this? But that's something that we're, we're still working on. And I think certainly the other, the other issue is did you uh, contact the FDA or maybe organization, maybe Pete's group or through... Uh, through ASCO or, or any of the organizations, uh, groups out there to try and see if others have noticed the same thing. I mean, it appears you, you know, you went, you went locally to people, you know, but maybe have you thought of trying to get outside of your local group and uh, try and see if anyone else in the PEDS world has seen the same thing and maybe report this? Yeah, we, we did. We, we um, sent some messages um, through some, some listservs, some, 
oncology, pediatric oncology, and adult oncology. It's used in the adult world too. And then we um, reported these this uptick to the FDA, and we also reported it to the filter manufacturer to see if mm-hmm. anyone else had um, had issues with the filter. Nothing really has came of that, but at least we felt like we were doing our due diligence and and letting people know. Oh, absolutely. And I appreciate that. Uh, and it did appear for those small number of people, children, I should say, not people, children, who had the reaction that in some cases you tried to re-challenge. In other uh, cases, you just went to the phosphate, which, again, we know is, uh, doesn't cause as many reactions. Uh, what When you're trying to look at mitigation, would you just monitor for the reaction, made it, made it, make it known in your in your electronic system, such that if something comes up, you then, I mean, I don't even know if it would pay to retreat these, uh, you know, rechallenge the the kids instead of just switching to the to the phosphate for the small number that this is possible. Yeah. Uh, what, what is what's your strategy moving forward? I guess that's what I'm getting at. True. Yeah, the tocosylphosphate is is definitely something that can be considered. The cost difference is really big there. So it's about $5 a dose for the atoposide and 112 or so for the atoposide FOS, which, you know, cost is not your end um, determinant. But also during this time period, I'm not up on the drug shortages now, but there was a time when the atoposide phosphate was on shortage. And so that can play a role in why some of these were not switched. So some of them were switched because atoposide was readily available, atoposide FOS was readily available, but in a time of shortage, do you change their chemotherapy regimen altogether um, if you can't get the atoposide phosphate product? Um, another thing that was changed at Children's Mercy where they did have some many more um, reactions where they had a, a, an ability to rechallenge is some of those patients in their initial infusion, they were getting the infusion over an hour. And so slower infusion time can help. And then pre-treating with Benadryl or steroids, it it makes it possible for the patient to tolerate. So for the cost difference, if you think that they're going to get, you know, several more doses and several cycles of chemo, and if the product is hard to get, it may be beneficial to try to do a a longer infusion time pre-treating to see if they can tolerate and then have you know a very low threshold for any signs of an infusion reaction to to go ahead and switch products at that at that point. Yeah, sounds like a very reasonable approach. And I think uh, you identified an issue, relatively rare issue. You seem to figure out what more than likely is the cause, and then created strategies moving forward, which I guess is a mitigate mitigation part of this to now be aware and watch for it. And then if it occurs, either. Uh, uh, re-challenge with pre-treatment and monitoring and or switch drug if it's available. So it seems like you've made now, now both institutions, are you both kind of doing the same thing then moving forward? Is that going to be the a general strategy moving forward for both institutions? Yes, that is the same. Excellent. So I guess my, my, my last question would be, uh, what kind of suggestions do you make for, for programs out there that are, that are interested in, in, in getting more involved, especially in the peds world, what kinds of things can can centers do to try and identify and keep better track, uh, even uh, you know for for some of these less common uh, uh, toxicities that may occur? I think um, having a culture of adverse drug reaction reporting is really important. So I think our institution does great with med errors and people feel empowered. This is nurses, respiratory therapists, pharmacists, everyone feels empowered. They can do one of these uh, medication error reports and there's no harm and anybody can report it. If it's reported five times on the same thing, we're like, great, this is wonderful. I think adverse drug reactions are a little bit different 
where the bedside nurse might think like, oh, I'm sure that the, the physician will put that in, or I'm sure the pharmacist will put that in. And then it gets kind of lost. Um, so I think, you know, being better education and more, more of a culture of reporting all of these things. And then also the better documentation into the medical record. You know, we've seen, especially in pediatrics, where a, pa- a patient will come in and they'll, the mother will say they had a reaction to penicillin when they were a child, you know, when they were three years old. And now they're a six-year-old and they have um, in their medical record, it gets, they get tagged as a penicillin allergy. And I think there's a big push in the infectious disease world to make sure that patients aren't getting mislabeled, you know, as a penicillin allergy when it was really, they just had some diarrhea with amoxicillin, which shouldn't preclude them from getting penicillin ever in their life. But maybe it was it was never documented. And the mom comes in and says, you know, this was a penicillin allergy where she really thinks that that's what this was. And so I think, you know, better documentation of adverse drug reactions of all levels, even those mild reactions, to put that in as a mild reaction, diarrhea with penicillin. So then when the ER attending sees this child when they're 12 years old and they need to have penicillin, they don't say, oh, they have a penicillin allergy. They'll say, oh, they had diarrhea with penicillin. I can still give that. So I think that, you know, this can come, of course, we want to know about those Stevens-Johnson syndromes and the um, the really severe adverse drug reactions. But I think I could, I would argue that the mild reactions are probably just important to getting the children, children and adults onto the correct treatment versus trying something different because of a false allergy or a false adverse drug reaction. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. I mean, I, I use the example of, uh, you know, patients uh, come in with acute pain and they get a narcotic, they get an opioid and, you know, within the first day or two, they're, they're throwing up, they're having nausea and vomiting and it gets put in their chart, they got an allergic reaction and it's basically nausea and vomiting. We all know that you can turn on the vomiting center and that's not an allergy per se, it's a side effect that typically goes away. So the same kind of things can occur. So I guess, you know, I think we spent decades trying to be careful at how we document adverse drug reactions. And do you think it's wise, though, for centers that, that do? I mean, we all have computerized drug databases now is to, is to look for key terms such as Benadryl and, and steroids and uh, epinephrine and, and, and search the patients who get those each month going back and try and look at uh, some kind of patterns for drugs where those would have been used those typically would be the drugs used for, for some type of allergic reaction. Yeah, that's definitely what our strategy has been going forward. So we are initiating a, I would call it like an immediate retrospective pharmacovigilant service because it's not exactly prospective. We use a mix of ICD nine and 10 codes. So billing Mm -hmm. codes, which are not put into the patient chart until after discharge typically. So it's not kind of in real time, but it's immediately, retrospective, I guess. And then we get a printout of any of those drugs that you mentioned, like steroids, Benadryl, epinephrine, and then the ICD codes for things like shortness of breath, Stevens-Johnson syndrome, rash, hives. Um, and then we correlate all those things and it come, it gives you a patient name or a patient identifier and then shows which one of those variables that are on our list generator. And then if, you know, if a patient has you know, several of those, they got Benadryl, hydrocortisone, epinephrine, and they had hives and shortness of breath. Well, that's something we're going to look into. And, you know, that's, those are the ones that kind of can target our um, pharmacovigilance um, monitoring. It's not foolproof. I think there's a lot of things that we're kind of looking at, you know, is it too sensitive? Is it not sensitive enough? And this is something we're continuing to tweak, but I think that's the way to do it going forward is to try to track these adverse drug reactions. 
No, I think it's very, a uh, very, very reasonable thing to try and to try and uh, fine tune it and hone it, and at least see if you can identify things before they become problematic or before, like you said, in this case, you make a change to something, then all of a sudden a lot more of these are occurring, but you don't have a system to find them. Uh, that's you know that's that's. Uh, something we should be doing more of. So I really appreciate it. I want to thank you for submitting this to Pharmacotherapy. I think it's a, a good article. I think it, it's more than just a reaction to a topicide. I think it's a, a process for all of us in pharmacy when we look at these kind of uh, either rare or even not so common adverse drug reactions, how to, how to identify, how to set up systems to identify and then mitigate and uh, put systems to, to better protect our patients. So uh, you can thank the, the rest of your group for, from Riley and, and also the, uh, your colleagues from uh, CMH uh, for this nice article. Thank you.